There's no secret formula for scaling support and boosting customer satisfaction. But there is the all-new service hub from HubSpot. It makes it infinitely easier to scale customer support and increase retention. By bringing service and support together in one powerful platform, you can deliver the best experiences for your customers and your teams. Free up time for your reps to focus on complex issues with an AI-powered help desk. Proactively drive retention with customer health scores that help keep your business ahead, stopping churn in its tracks. And give your entire go-to-market team the data they need to operate as one unified, powerful front. Also, you can better connect with customers and keep them happy. Secrets out. HubSpot Service Hub is a game changer. Visit HubSpot.com service to do more for your customers today. One ballpark nachos. I'm Zachary Crockett with Mark Dent. This is the Hustle Daily Show. Today, we're going to tell you the story of a family business in Texas that invented ballpark nachos and nearly 50 years later still controls a substantial chunk of the market. Mark, before we get into the real meat of the story here, I feel like we should step back a little bit and talk about the origin of nachos because this family business we're going to be talking about didn't actually invent the nacho. Yes, yeah, and they're very clear about that. They came up with the ballpark nacho as we know it, right? The container of chips with cheese poured over it, or maybe it's in like a little thing, and then you dip your chips into it. Mm. But nachos themselves were actually an authentic Mexican dish that came into existence around 1940. When you think of a lot of the foods we eat today, there's not always this clear line for how something was invented. There's maybe just some sort of mythology around it or or maybe it like showed up and became popular at some World's Fair, you know? Mm-hmm. But like with nachos, there is a, a pretty tidy origin story for it. So like I was saying, it was around 1940 in the southwestern corner of Texas and uh, northeastern corner of Mexico, right along the border. There's some military wives who are in Eagle Pass who cross into Mexico to the border town of Piedras Negras. And it's like late afternoon. These women, there's four of them, so the story goes, and they are drinking. Okay. They're drinking pretty heavily. They have four rounds, and so they're getting hungry, as you do. And there's really not many people in the restaurants because it's just kind of like before dinner time. But there is the maitre d', whose name is Ignacio Anaya. And in the kitchen, the cook's not there yet. So he wants to whip something up for them. He kind of scours around for whatever ingredients he can find. And he just grabs a tortilla, some just shredded yellow cheese, and some jalapenos. And he puts the cheese on top of the tortilla, cuts it into like slices, Mm -hmm. and then puts the jalapenos on top and then throws it all together in the oven to kind of cook it. So it comes out Mm -hmm. essentially a tortilla chip at this point topped with cheese and jalapenos. Mm. Well, okay, let me ask you this. If you look at some of these famous food inventions like the Philly cheesesteak, there's always like these hotly contested stories behind their invention. I know in Philly, there's like at least two or three different establishments that claim that they're the originator. (laughs) Is this story kind of like an urban legend or has it been substantiated at all over time? It's somewhere in the middle. It's definitely not an urban 
urban legend. If you read almost any publication about the invention of nachos, this is in there. Okay. And it's been pretty well established. You know, <laughs> there's some people who think that, oh, other people in Mexico were making something similar at the time. So okay. Ignacio Anaya didn't necessarily come up with it absolutely first. But there isn't anyone else who comes close to being credited with it. And the name came from him, right? Mm -hmm. His nickname was Nacho. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, Ignacio, just a very common nickname for people yeah, with yeah. that name, is Nacho. They started to get pretty big over the next few years, especially in Texas on the other side of the border. Ignacio Anaya even opened his own restaurant in Eagle Pass eventually. And he did some interviews too. I mean, he was born, I think, in the late 1890s, but he did this interview in 1969 with the San Antonio Express News. And he was saying that when he was a kid, his mother would make him quesadillas and that he had always thought of uh, what if you could have some sort of like variation on it? And, and when you think about nachos, they are fairly similar. And right. The cheese, obviously, inside on the quesadilla, and here it was on the outside. That said, though, Anaya kind of lamented the fact that he never really got to make a lot of money off of his invention. Mm. He did open that restaurant, and so he did well for himself. But he wasn't like, you know, rolling in the dough as many inventors are for lots of products. I mean, if he had wanted to, could he have patented something like the nacho? Is that even something that you can do? Patent a recipe? Yeah, you can, but it would have been very difficult. Huh. Anaya even said that he had like a lawyer friend in San Antonio who had brought it up with him that like, hey, you should try and patent this. And he just didn't do it because he wasn't really sure that nachos were going to take off anyway. And then, of course, they did. Wow. So he didn't do it. How would you patent a recipe? They're usually pretty specific dishes or like just ingredients that become like a larger dish. Hmm. The reason why is because you have to like fully prove that you were the first one to come up with it. And then secondly, that your recipe is non-obvious. And there was this court case in the 1960s that actually involved John Deere, of all companies. Really? <laughs> yeah. So it wasn't completely direct to food, but then there was some crossover, I suppose. And this non-obvious definition means that an average chef would not be able to look at your ingredients and make your dish on the spot. Okay. So, I don't know, transport yourself back to 1945, and perhaps it would have been non-obvious, <laughs> but it's really hard to tell right now. So this guy, Ignacio, or Nacho for short, he doesn't patent his invention, but he, for many years, runs a pretty successful restaurant in Eagle Pass, Texas called Nacho's Restaurant. He serves these. They get pretty popular through the 60s. The first lady of Texas even admits to loving them by the mid-60s. As this idea spreads throughout Texas, did it spread throughout the rest of the country or was it mainly just Texas at that point? It still wasn't that big of a deal most of the places. Okay. It was largely in Texas and just kind of like in the Southwest. Okay. So as the idea spreads in Texas and maybe a little bit throughout the rest of the Southwest, what is going on in the market for nachos? Is someone else starting to think about this as a viable business? This is where the Liberto family comes in. And they lived in San Antonio, which is, you know, not too close to Eagle Pass, but not too far either. And their family had operated this business called Liberto Specialty Company since 1909. It was started by Rosario Liberto, who was from Sicily, immigrated to the United States and ended up settling in San Antonio. And that business was mostly a sort of grocer produce type of company. They kind of specialized in olives, coffees, 
often these imported goods that they would actually get from Italy and then bring back. So they, they kind of stood out for that reason. But San Antonio was like a town that that kind of loved to have these festivals. They mm-hmm. had a lot of them, like parades, festivals, big parties, things like that. Okay. And so Rosario Liberto got the idea to start selling peanuts. So that was something that ended up being the genesis of their bigger business, which is like the concession business. Huh. And, you know, back in the 1920s, sports weren't a big deal yet. Movie theaters were obviously quite a few of those, but they're not quite like they are today. So it was still like things that you would sell to live audiences. There's a picture that the Liberto family still has where it talks about how many peanuts they had sold in these early days. And in 1921, Rosario was at this Battle of Flowers parade, and he had a sign hanging outside of his cart that reads 400,000 pounds sold. Jeez. All right. So this guy's doing some serious volume. (laughs) Yeah. Major peanut selling. So when he dies, the company passes on to his son, Enrico, who kind of, you know, just builds it up a little further. Then it gets passed on to Frank Liberto. Mm -hmm. And this is like more by around like the 50s and the 60s. And Frank Liberto takes Rico's to a whole nother level. He Mm -hmm. makes it into like a full stop business for anything that someone who wants to have a concession stand needs. They would sell not just peanuts, but popcorn, snow cones, CO2 for fountain sodas. Mm. They would have a janitor staff that they would employ. So that way their clients wouldn't even have to worry about like the cleanup. Mm. It was just like a full stop shop. And they got some pretty big clients because sports were starting to take off around this time, especially in Texas. Uh, You had Mm. a baseball team called the Texas Rangers who were one of their key clients. So the Rangers want food served in their park. Liberto is a one-stop shop for them. They get everything they need to keep the fans happy. They're just an all-in-one business that caters to this burgeoning sports market in Texas. Exactly. And Frank Liberto, he was like a real grinder. (laughs) (laughs) What do you mean? He worked incredibly hard. As his son told me, his son is named Tony Liberto, told me about his father, Frank, that Frank would just not really take vacation. He would just work all the time. He Mm. would wake up and be afraid he was going to fail and the whole business was going to end that day. (laughs) And that was kind of like the attitude that he took into every day. And so he would look for every edge that he could get, Mm. which is why he was adding the janitor staff. So that way no one could beat him if he offered all these services. I think the fact that he was looking for all these edges kind of led him to when he was just eating at a Mexican restaurant one day, saw nachos on the menu, and he thought they would be a really good snack for him to add at a concession stand. Wow. So he sees an iteration of what Ignacio Anaya had invented, essentially, a decade or so earlier. Yeah. The issue, though was that it would take 15 or 20 minutes to get them cooked if you were Mm -hmm. in a restaurant. And that is just not acceptable at a concession stand where you pay your money and then you want the food handed basically immediately to you. And so he had to figure out how he could like change nachos and make them a little bit easier to be served at like a baseball game. Hmm. And he realized pretty quickly that the cheese was going to be probably the most important aspect of it. And so he started corresponding with the Rangers and kind of looped them in on what he was doing. And they started working on like ways where they'd just have some chips and they'd just melt all types of different cheeses they could find and see what melted, like what kind of cheap (laughs) cheese would actually melt really fast to the point where you wouldn't have to like throw it in the oven or something like that. And so they started working on that. And soon enough, he was like, okay, I think I can do this. 
I want to go ahead and push forward and take the gamble. And what cheese does he settle on? (laughs) So the gamble that he took was kind of having to find the right ingredients because his company didn't manufacture, right? They didn't produce any of these things, at least not at this point. And so there's the three key ingredients. So the tortilla chips, he had a friend who had a chip company there in San Antonio, and he talked him into helping make a sturdier chip that wouldn't just become soggy under the weight of melted cheese. So that was a fairly easy one for him to find. Then there was the jalapenos. And for that, this kind of goes back to like this guy's personality. He told his family they were going on vacation. And then they drove about five or six hours south into Mexico And they stopped somewhere outside Monterey to this farm, (laughs) La Costeña, which is a big grower. And he met with someone there and cut a deal to get like jalapenos on the cheese. He pulled the old switcheroo on his family. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then finally, yeah, for the cheese sauce, he found Dean Foods and he met with the president of Dean Foods who would only meet with him at an airport in Chicago. And they started talking it over. And eventually what would happen is that his company would kind of get their own specific cheese made by them. But for now, they kind of just got cheese and they cut a deal for how much he would have to order. And it was a lot. So that's where it was like a gamble, right? He had to buy all these supplies, not entirely sure how interested the Rangers really were. All right. So that takes us to the next part of the story here. He's finally got this system figured out for the nachos to streamline the production a little bit and produce them at a sustainable volume. But then he hits this other roadblock with the Texas Rangers, his first big prospective client. The Rangers have some serious concerns about nachos. What are they? The Rangers were afraid that nachos would cut into the sales of popcorn by too much. Okay. And popcorn was kind of the big money-making concession at the time. Popcorn was their highest margin item. And Mm. the Liberta family would sell popcorn to the Rangers back in the 1970s, maybe like five or 10 cents. And then the Rangers would go and they'd sell it for about 12 times that. Mm. So it was just like this really high margin item. And they kind of thought of it as like, okay, well, that's a snack. These nachos are a snack. We don't want to like cut into our own good profits here. Right. But to kind of sway them, Frank Liberto said he would mandate jalapenos be served on the nachos. (laughs) You had to have them on there. Why? You'd get thirsty. You would need something else, basically, whether it was a soda, maybe another food item, a beer, etc., And that is what led to the Rangers giving him this opportunity. Hmm. They were still a little hesitant. They would not allow the Libertos to sell the nachos from the actual concession stand when the season started in 1976. They forced them to have their own separate carts in the walkway or whatever away from the concession stand. And so Tony Liberto, who runs the company now, is the son of Frank. He helped to just build about a dozen of these little carts and they put them up in the stadium. And immediately the nachos were popular. How popular are we talking here? Like, do we have any numbers? So in 1979, which would have been about three years after they came out, there are some numbers, actually. And it was 531,000 orders across the whole season that year. Wow. So that's 530,001 orders in roughly 80 games. The team's total attendance was 1.3 million. So that means out of every fan who attended a game, one of every 2.4 ate nachos. Wow. That's ludicrous. So in addition to that, it seems like Liberto's vision, his kind of insidious vision for requiring the jalapenos paid off too, because concession sales also jumped those first few years, which meant that presumably those nachos were causing more purchases of sodas, beers, beverages, and other things. 
nachos, they were a catalyst, a catalyst of other food purchases. <laughs> so it worked out like exactly as planned. And but that said, they still, at least for the first couple of years, remained this niche item that was kind of a Texas thing. Hmm. Then it started to change. So the Libertas probably could have stopped there and had a nice little business for themselves just off the one Texas Rangers client, but they had a grander vision. Who do they go after next? Well, they stayed local and they went for the Dallas Cowboys. And that was just about a year after they started the nachos at the Rangers games. So by like fall 1977, you could get them at Dallas Cowboys games. And one night, the famous broadcaster, Howard Cosell, was there for Monday Night Football. And, you know, even today, Monday Night Football is still kind of a big deal. But then it was just like this mesmerizing national audience. Hmm. And Howard Cosell just starts eating nachos and he raves about them on the air. <laughs> so all of a sudden, people around the country hear how good these ballpark nachos are. Hey, everybody, I got a great podcast to tell you about. It's called Truth, Lies, and Work, and it's brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. On this show, you can join husband and wife team Alan, Leanne, Elliot, as they dispel myths, impart wisdom, and answer all your questions about finding, keeping, and motivating great people. They actually just did an episode with John Smith, who is the manager and agent of famous Argentinian soccer player Diego Maradona. He talks about in this episode how he was able to manage the global superstar athlete celebrity that Maradona is and was. It's a great listen. You better get out there and check it out. And you can listen to Truth, Lies, and Work wherever you get your podcasts. And that leads to United Artists, a big theater chain, which is now Regal Cinema, wow. hearing about them and getting interest. And they want the Liberto family's nachos in every single one of their theaters in the U.S. They want them in some international theaters even. And so really very quickly in the late 70s and early 80s, the Liberto family has this massive, massive client. And uh, according to the family, they were pretty soon within 80% of all movie theaters in the United States. Jeez. So if we were to step back a little bit and maybe think about this as like a business case study or something. I guess it's interesting to me that their product was really simple, right? It kind of goes back to like the like Ignacio Anaya, like to where, well, you couldn't patent this thing. So how do you get such a stranglehold on it? And I think the reasons why are he did just have this relentless, absurd drive. Yeah. And then the fact that nobody really cared. There weren't like people knocking on the door to be like, I got to start selling nachos and make a mint. Hmm. It's a little unusual because usually when a new hot product comes along, there are just, uh, you know, hundreds of competitors that spring up and kind of leech off of that success. Yeah. But at least for a few decades, it seemed like this company really had <laughs> a stranglehold on the nacho market. In the last couple decades or so, that's changed. Frito-Lay has Tostitos and you'll find their nachos at games, depending on where you're at. And there's another company called Gale, which is G-E-H-L. And they actually were family owned until maybe just a few years ago, but now they're corporate owned. And, and these are much, much larger companies. So Liberto eventually became Rico's and it's still alive today. You took a trip out to their headquarters. How has their business evolved? What does the modern day Rico's operation look like today? Modern day Rico's isn't entirely unlike what it was in 1976, which is part of the reason for why they still exist. I know it's what like business leaders always want to say. They always talk about connections and, you know, we have this and that and, and that's why we're still in it. But it is partially true for them because Frank Liberto would just do these favors almost for like some of his clients 
and in the way that he treated the producers, you know, who had the jalapenos and the the chips, etc. But when he would give the cheese sauce supplies to like the Texas Rangers or a particular movie theater, he'd always give them like these discounts. This is going to sound pretty gross for people who eat these nachos. And and I think the cheese has changed a little uh, since then. (laughs) But like back then, he mixed it with water and some other stuff. And so he would throw in some extra mix, if you will, to where they were like getting more bang for their buck. And it just made people really like Rico's products, Mm -hmm. made them like that company. Back then there weren't really that many competitors. Rico's has altogether about 100 employees. And you're talking, you know, Frito-Lay is a portion of Pepsi, for God's sakes. All right. So the big dogs have caught on to this business that Loberto, now Rico's had. Yeah. But they've kind of transitioned in a way to where they've started to sell more chips and cheese sauce in stores, in addition to just being at the ballpark and being at movie theaters. So that's given them a little bit more revenue streams. It's kind of weird, especially how these things work at sporting events now. Whatever stadium you're at, most likely the concession foods that you see, Mm -hmm. there's going to be some sort of billboard or advertising sign for them throughout the stadium. And that's because these teams require their concession vendors to become sponsors. Interesting. It's like, if you want us to sell your chips, then you're going to have to pay to be a sponsor for us. Ah. And so that becomes difficult, especially because, you know, Frito-Lay Tostitos can obviously put down whatever amount of money they want. So sometimes what Rico's does is they'll have like their jalapenos will be used at the concession stand, but they weren't able to get that sponsorship rate for the chips. Ah, I see. (laughs) So they might only be partially there, but they're still there. Movie theaters has not gotten that cutthroat yet. And they're still in roughly 60% of movie theaters in the US, according Mm. to the company. I want to talk about the actual cheese here because... That is kind of the secret sauce of the nacho. And like, what exactly are we eating when we eat a Rico's nacho today? What is this stuff? We are not eating real cheese. That is for sure. Yeah. Tony Liberto says that there is some real cheese in the sauce. Some? Yes, some. That's not assuring. (laughs) When it's all mixed together, though. Okay. It is not real cheese. The FDA uh, does not define it as such because the FDA has definitions for cheese, you know, for like Gruyere, for cheddar, etc. Does not have it for nacho cheese. This item of food that isn't quite authentic, I guess. And he also wouldn't really tell me as expected what really is in it, what's the secret sauce. But it is like a very specific thing. They do still have a company called Treehouse, which bought out Dean Foods, manufacture it for them. Hmm. And there are apparently only about five manufacturing plants in the US that do the very specific process that allows you to make this cheese Hmm. and then immediately kind of have it in a bag ready to go in like a uh, sanitary way. Wow. So it's a pretty specific niche if you're aware of what goes into nacho cheese sauce. And is that considered a bit of a trade secret? Is there a level of protection around that in the same way that maybe Coca-Cola would guard their recipe? I don't think it's quite that high. Okay. But it is quite high. Like Tony Liberta wouldn't even tell me where he gets it manufactured, for instance. The trade secret to nachos, at least as the Liberta family has built their business, are their connections and the way that they're able to scrap together this dish for a cheap price. As Tony Liberta explained it, they get prices that they offer to the Texas Rangers or whoever their clients are 
they can offer them low enough prices that they might as well be the manufacturers of the cheese sauce and everything else when they only manufacture the chips. And it's just because they've streamlined the operation so much and developed so much knowledge over the years that they've kind of held together Mm -hmm. and can still therefore compete with Tostitos and with Gale and things like that. Yeah, I came across this story from 1983. Back in the 80s, a 29-year-old man named Donald Nielsen was arrested for attempting to buy a secret customer list from an employee of Liberta Specialties. He was trying to obtain the suppliers and the recipe for the cheese. (laughs) And uh, he was arrested and thwarted. But at least at one point in time, this was considered a, a highly secretive and coveted recipe or process. Right. I think that kind of gets to what I was explaining there because the secret that he was trying to steal was basically where do you get the cheese from? Exactly. Yeah. It, it wasn't like the cheese itself. Now, here's an interesting thing about that story. So that was an employee of Liberto Specialty Company who was going to like hand off mm. that list of manufacturers there, client list, if you will. And at least as Tony Liberto explained it to me, his father, Frank, the the really like hard, relentless guy, right. he found out about it before it happened. Uh-oh. Yeah. You don't want to deal with Frank. No, you don't. And so what he did was kind of start following that employee. The, the CEO did this, started following the employee around, seeing what he was doing, who, who he was meeting with. And he looped in the police officers and they set up a sting operation so they could catch that what? person in the act of handing off the secret <laughs> list there. All right. Well, that's probably like the only sting operation in history over Nacho. Secret intel. (laughs) Yes. Wow. Interesting. So today, what's Rico's bottom line looking like? What does the Nacho business look like in terms of revenue and numbers and sales? I couldn't get the most updated numbers from Tony Liberto. He wouldn't give that to me. But Rico's in 2019 was making around $128 million. And over the course of the pandemic, he said that they really stayed pretty strong because instead of going to games or movies, people were just buying their products at the store. And mm-hmm. and like I said, they've really made a push to try and get their name out there. So people realize, oh, these chips I've been eating at the baseball park all my life are Rico's and I can now enjoy them at home. They've been fairly successful at that so far. You know, they've seen growth every year in the five to 10 percent range. And so they're doing well. And and like I said, they're still a pretty small business, all things considered, especially compared to their competitors. But I think the most interesting thing to me of when we think of how ballpark nachos fit in modern day. Mm -hmm. So there's like a really good example that we saw from 1979, right, where it was something like one of every 2.4 fans at those Texas Rangers games were eating nachos. Mm -hmm. Well, in San Antonio, there's the AT&T Center, which is where the San Antonio Spurs play. There's a lot of concerts and other events and things like that. Well, at the AT&T Center, in a given night when they have an event, there's usually 1,900 orders of nachos bought. So that place seats just under 19,000 people. So you're still talking about, at a sporting event, one out of every 10 people orders ballpark nachos. Mm. A slight decline from the 70s. Slight decline. More than I thought it would be, though, still. Yeah, still pretty hot. Have you ever ordered nachos at a sporting event? Like, what's your go-to? Oh, yeah. I typically do all the time. Even as a kid, I think my parents would only let me get hot dogs. I don't know why. (laughs) They were not a health food. But, like, eventually they finally let me get nachos. And so, yeah, when I go to a baseball game and I eat some food or a football game, whatever, it's usually nachos. (laughs) 
All right, that's going to do it for us today. Thanks for tuning in to the Hustle Daily Show. We're a proud part of the HubSpot Podcast Network. Our editor today was Robert Hartwig, and our executive producer, as always, is Mr. Darren Clark. We've got a lot more tech and business coverage over on our newsletter. If you're not subscribed, you can find it over at thehustle.co slash email. That's thehustle.co slash email. And we'll be back tomorrow with our regular show. More news, a little less cheese. We'll see you then.